Hi, this is Chappie, and you're listening to my spooky podcast, P.S. Spooky Shiz. Now that September is well underway, I want to start putting out some haunted episodes and some spooky stuff in honor of Halloween season and spooky season itself. So get ready for more spooky shiz in the coming month. All right. With that being said, let's jump into some ghost stories. All right. Our first article comes from NPR.org. And it's from, I think, a column called Code Switchers, or Code Switch. All right, so let's see. It was written in 2014 uh, by Cicely Meza Martinez. If we skip the intro, which just talks about scary Halloween vibes, we get right into our first story. All right, this one is called The Night Demon. An evil creature stalks the Tanzanian island of Pemba in the Indian Ocean. It can change shape, a bat sometimes, a human-like form at others. It prefers to come out at night, but some say they have seen it during the day. The Popobawa batwing in Swahili is indiscriminate in its targets, but a common retelling, the spirit sexually assaults men. The Popobawa story is rather new, only dating back a few decades from a time of civil unrest following the assassination of the country's president. The popular thinking goes that after a Popobawa attack, victims must spread the word to others on Pemba, otherwise they could continue to be visited by the Popobawa. Reports of attacks send some locals into a panic. A few years ago, a series of nighttime sexual assaults were blamed on the Papabawa. Some men are staying awake or sleeping in groups outside their homes, the BBC reported in 2007. Others have smeared themselves with pig's oil, believing this repels the attacks. A peasant farmer named Jaka Hamad claims he was attacked by the Papabawa in 1997. He said... I couldn't see it. I could only feel it. But some people in my house could see it. Those who've got the spirits in their heads could see it. Everybody was terrified. They were outside screaming, Huyo. It means the Papabaya is here. I had this bad pain in my ribs where it crushed me. I don't believe in spirits, so maybe that's why it attacked me. Maybe it will attack anyone who doesn't believe. Alright, that brings us to our next story. The Girl in the Bathroom In Japan, the schools contain an infernal secret. If you go into the girl's bathroom on the third floor of the building and walk into the third stall, you might find her. You have to knock three times and call her name. A code switch reader named Jessica tweeted at us. When you open the stall, a little girl in a red skirt will be there. The little girl with the bob haircut is Hanako-san. She wants friends to play with, or maybe, or perhaps, she wants to drag you to hell through the toilet. Depending on which part of Japan you live in, she may have a bloody hand and grab you, or be a lizard that devours you, Jessica said. Although I am just getting scared just thinking about her right now. 
Hanako-san has become a fixture of Japanese urban folklore for the last 70 years. The most popular origin story from the tale holds that during World War II, a schoolgirl was using the bathroom when a bomb fell on top of the building. The school collapsed on top of Hanako-san, who has been trapped there ever since. But Hanako isn't the only schoolgirl who haunts Japan's school bathrooms. Kashima Riko, another young girl, was said to have been cut in half by a train. Now her disfigured spirit inhabits bathrooms, asking children who enter the stalls where her legs are. The legend goes that if Kamisha Riko is not satisfied with her answer, she will rip their legs off. Alright, our next story. The Woman of Your Worst Dreams. In Brazil, a tall skinny woman with long yellow fingernails and red eyes creeps along the rooftops and watches families inside their homes. She watches them as they sit at the table for dinner. She watches them while they eat. La Pisadiera. After the meal, when someone goes to sleep on a full stomach, La Pisadiera sneaks in their bedroom. Then she sits on their chest so they cannot move. The Pisadiera has attacked them, watches them as they begin to panic. The victim's eyes partly open, but they're neither fully asleep or fully awake helpless and trapped in a body that won't move. Sleep paralysis is a well-studied disorder. The worst thing is when you try to fight or call for help, a Redditor said in a conversation about what the experience with it were like, your voice doesn't work and your body will not respond. You just feel helpless. And among those who suffer from it across many cultures, there's one unsettling common experience. A sense that a malevolent force is hovering over them in their immobile state. This is a quote. The earliest one I can remember is with my mother in the room. She's sitting on my bed and her face morphs into a demon-like thing. A Redditor shared in a thread on sleep paralysis. Or a large dark figure, kind of human silhouette, emerging from the foot of my bed and staring down at me. Could her mom or the silhouette have been a pisadiera? They went on. Look, I need to stop trying to remember these things. I'm getting chills. That brings us to our next story. The Weeping Woman. Her name was Maria. She lived in Mexico. She had long, dark hair and a covetous heart. The man she loved would not have her. So she took her children in a fit of rage, took them down to the river, and drowned them, one by one. When the man she loved spurned her again, she realized that what she'd done. She took herself to the water and threw herself in, to subject herself to the same fate as her children. But heaven would not have Maria, and she was condemned to wander the world in perpetual grief. She is La Lorna, the wailing woman. Maybe I said that wrong. She is Lo La Lorona. La Llorona, the Wailing Woman. The people who have seen her said they can hear her walking, soaking wet, wearing all white, and she can be heard crying out for the little ones she killed. Ay, mis hijos, she weeps. 
Oh, my children. Some say that she snatches other young children as she walks, mistaking them for her own young children that she knew. Children along the Mexican border grow up with her story, which traces itself to stories about several different female spirits of the Aztec Empire. This is a quote. My earliest memory of her is being in elementary school and being in the girls' bathroom, says Terry Martinez, who grew up in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. She and other young children would try to summon La La Rona in a bathroom mirror. The lights had to be out, Martinez said. The door had to be closed. They'd splash water on the mirror and say her name three times. It has it written out three different times, but I'm not going to play that game. It was just seeing who could stand, being in the dark room, and seeing how long we could stand there waiting for her to come out of the sink, Martinez said. It usually ended up with a bunch of little girls screaming and running out of the bathroom. So we hop on over to Travel Channel, where they have 11 of the scariest ghost stories from Reddit. It is written by Beth Breeden. I was camping with my husband and his family at a small remote lake in New Mexico. There were about 10 people in our group and another group of six people in the next campsite. It was nighttime and both groups were doing typical activities, making s'mores, having a few drinks and telling stories. And when we all heard what sounded like a little girl yelling out for help, neither group had children with them, but we were all positive we were hearing a little girl and decided to search the area we heard the noises from together. There was a field behind our campsites, and we saw a very tall, pure white figure standing maybe 100 feet away from us in the field, making noises. We all agreed this thing looked maybe 6 feet tall, skinny, and as white as can be. We made our way closer to investigate, but whatever it was, we saw backing off as we got closer, and it disappeared into the trees. All night, we continued to hear a little girl calling for help as we tried to sleep. I would have packed up the car <laughs> and gone camping in my backyard on a different time. <laughs> that sounds like something we can't talk about. <laughs> All right, we go over to the British newspaper archive blog, and we see an article, 10 of the most spine-chilling ghost stories from the archive by Rose Stavley Wadham. Number one. An Army of Ghosts, Havera Park, Yorkshire, 1812. Our first story comes from over 200 years ago, from the fields at Havera Park near Ripley, and it was featured in the Leeds Mercury, July of 1812. The newspaper sets the scene. On Sunday evening, the 28th, between 7 and 8 o'clock, Anthony Jackson, farmer, aged 45 years old, and Martin Turner, son of William Turner, farmer, aged 15, while engaged in inspecting their cattle on Havera Park near Ripley, part of the estate of Sir John Ingleby, Bart, were suddenly surprised by an extraordinary appearance in the park. Turner, whose attention was first drawn to the spectacle, said, Look, Anthony, what a quantity of beasts. But they were not beasts which young William had spied. Farmer Anthony Jackson proclaiming, Lord bless us, they are not beasts, they are men. What William and Anthony were witnessing as they stood inspecting their cattle were the ghostly army of soldiers in a white military uniform, 
stood in the center of them was the personage of commanding aspect, who was clothed in scarlet. The army of ghosts then began to march in perfect order to the summit of a hill, passing William and Anthony by about a hundred yards, and then, no sooner had the first body, which seemed to consist of several hundreds, and extended four deep, over the enclosure of thirty acres, attained the hill, and then another ensemblage of men, far more numerous than the former, dressed in dark-colored clothes, arose and marched without any apparent hostility after the military specters. Both ensembles of soldiers then started marching away, when at that very moment a volume of smoke spread over the plain. It was so thick, so impervious, as the Leeds Mercury describes, that William and Anthony lost sight of their cattle for a full two minutes, and when the smoke cleared, the ghostly armies had vanished. Number two, a ghostly visitor. In 1878, the Banbury advisor printed a genuine ghost story, which was told by Lieutenant General Albert Fitch. Fitch had been posted to Maulmain, Burma, Myanmar, and he swore that while he saw a ghost with his own eyes in broad daylight, he was so convinced of this sighting that he could make an affidavit about it. Fitch begins his story as follows. I had an old schoolfellow who was afterwards a college friend with whom I lived in the closest intimacy. Years, however, had passed away without our seeing each other. One morning, I had just got out of bed and was dressing myself when suddenly my old friend entered the room. I greeted him warmly, told him to call for a cup of tea in the veranda, and promised to be with him immediately. I dressed myself in all haste and went out into the veranda, but found no one there. Fitz then began to search for his friend. I could not believe my eyes. I called to the sentry who was posted at the front of the house, but he had seen no strange gentleman that morning. The servants also declared that no such person had entered the house. I was certain I had seen my old friend. I was not thinking about him at the time, yet I was not taken by surprise, as steamers and other vessels were frequently arriving at Maulmain. Two weeks later, Fitch heard the sad news about his friend. He had died, some 600 miles away. What made it all the more eerie was that Fitch saw his friend about that very time that he died, and that was the ghost of his friend. Fitch was sure. To this day, I have never doubted that I really saw the ghost of my friend. Number three. In July 1895, the Evening Herald, Dublin, published a short article entitled, A Countess Who Saw a Ghost. The Countess in question was the Countess of Munster, who, according to the Strand magazine, had seen a ghost. The Countess had become the object of the infatuated adoration of a person of her own sex, who later passed away. And then sometime later, the Countess was lying in bed when, just as the, the clock struck twelve, her friend appeared before her. The weird visitor was in her usual dress, as in life, and she had a smile on her face. The Countess called out and asked the figure what had brought her there, but as soon as the ladyship's voice had ceased, the apparition disappeared. Tidings of Death, Blackwood, Carefully. In 1907, Salt Merchant, Samuel Hughes took the wrong train home from Newport, Wales. His body was later found beneath a bridge at Crumlin. And in February 1907, the North Down Herald and County Down Independent published an extraordinary story surrounding Hughes' tragic death, which is titled Saw a Black Ghost. At the time of Samuel Hughes' accident, his wife was waiting up for him at their home in Blackwood,
early in the morning when she opened the door and saw a tall figure in black clothes wearing a silk hat. In a minute, he disappeared, and she went outside and could not see anyone. When Robert Wright, a retired farmer, appeared at the Stansed Sessions to claim possession of a house, he told a strange story relating to the house where he was at the time living. The Western Daily Press, December 1920, reported on the farmer's story, which Wright related as follows. At 2.31 morning, he and his wife were awakened from sleep saw their bedroom door open, and an apparition standing in the doorway. It was that of a strange man wearing only a shirt, trousers, and braces. The apparition called Mother several times, and then disappeared. That is so creepy. Wright went to check on his son, the only other person in the house at the time. His son was fast asleep and protested that he had not been dreaming and had not left his bed. The retired farmer was to see the apparition a second time when it was crouching in a corner on the landing. The sightings had so upset Wright and his wife that it was affecting their health. In July 1934, the Sunday Mirror reported that a girl typist who saw a ghost fall in a city street. The typist in question was passing the office building when she fainted, after which she was carried into a chemist shop in Aldwych. When she came around, she declared that she had had the impression as she walked that a girl had fallen from the window of a high building and fallen at her feet, and the shock was so great that she collapsed. At some 18 months before, the tragedy she described actually did happen. A young woman had fallen from an upper story and was killed at that very spot where the typist fainted. As if it wasn't coincidence enough, the typist who saw the apparition was never heard of, had never heard of the tragedy before. Let's go ahead and take a little break and get right back into the stories after this. All right, jumping right back into the blog article, we are at number seven, The Phantom Pedestrian, Torque Devon, 1951. In July of 1951, taxi driver Jack Driscoll was driving back from Newton Abbott, Devon, early one morning in the drenching rain when he saw a ghost. The Torquay Times and South Devon Advertiser reports how he was just nearing Law's Bridge when he saw a man step, up, step off the pavement by the Torbay Hospital driveway. Thinking it must be a fare, he slowed down. The man carried on walking without glancing left or right, and Jack had to brake hard to avoid an accident. Jack was incensed and pulled over, getting out of his car to give that jaywalker a piece of his mind. But to his great surprise, there was no one there for him to berate. The roadway and pavements were bare, with no possible place for anyone to hide. Jack told reporters, It sent a chill down my spine, I can tell you. I just jumped back in my seat, put my foot down, and got away as quick as I could. And going to the press put Jack in a difficult situation. He was mocked by his colleagues at the Luxicab Garage, which was situated opposite Torque's Odeon Cinema, with some suggesting that Jack's encounter was down to an overactive imagination. But Jack was adamant, and no one could offer a satisfactory solution to what had happened to him that early Monday morning. He said, I could have been mistaken. The fellow, he was dressed in a light raincoat, was there all right, and my headlights were full on him. Besides, there's plenty of light just there. 
The Birmingham Daily Gazette in November of 1953 reported how a 23-year-old railwayman named Ray Ward had seen a ghost near Westwood House shortly after midnight. Ray lived in a cottage behind the historic house and was returning from shift work when he saw the figure of a woman bathed in a kind of blue light. Ray was walking around the side of the house when he caught sight of the woman's figure, which was framed in an archway which leads to the garden. Ray related how. I could not see her face clearly, but she was tall and graceful, and there was a phosphorescent light about her, as clear as day. She must have remained there for about three seconds before she vanished. The apparition had long hair, wore a bodice, and crinoline like a girl at a party. Ray, who had previously scorned people for believing in the supernatural, was now a believer. Meanwhile, the appearance of the so-called Blue Lady was not the only strange occurrence at Westwood House that year. The Birmingham Daily Post spoke with the new owner of the house, Mr. Brown, who was sat before a roaring log fire in the great home, Mr. Brown told the newspaper. I have lived here only 12 months, but in that time, at least eight people have claimed to see or hear things. One saw a horse and a rider on the drive near the lake, and both my wife and her friend are convinced they have seen a man walking around the house. On another occasion, friends staying here thought they heard two children running down the passage in the night, yet both of them were fast asleep. Other people have noticed a strong smell of flowers in the cellar. Mr. Brown has not experienced any of these strange phenomena, but he would not sleep in the huge four-poster in Queen Elizabeth's room, he told the Birmingham Daily Post. I tried it once and felt as if someone was pressing down on me all night. We put some relations in there, and we they never sleep a wink either. We think that sounds scary enough. Mr. Brown finished his interview by telling the newspaper how he knew of no great tragedy or legend which might be linked to the apparitions, which seem to haunt the house. All right, number nine, George Ann Kruger, Hawthorne Hill, Berkshire, 1965. In Berkshire, 1965, a courting couple were sitting in a car on a lonely field path at Hawthorne Hill, as reports the read, Reading Evening Post on October 1967, when all of a sudden they were startled by the loud noise of galloping nearby. Acting on a sudden impulse, the girl switched on the headlamps of the car, and they were both astonished to see a powerful-looking horse ridden by a young man in a jockey's cap and colors, which was visible for a moment or two as it passed through the headlamp's beams. The resourceful couple made inquiries, and it seemed that no one knew of any horses being exercised at night in the area but a visit to a local public house gave an interesting explanation as to what they had seen. A young man remarking to the couple, I reckon what you saw was George and Kruger. My grandfather says he often saw them up by Hawthorne Hill on a winter night. The young man's grandfather was tracked down, and he professed his belief that both the jockey and the horse were ghosts. He told the following story. In the winter that Queen Victoria died, there had been a tragedy at Hawthorne Hill Racecourse. A lad of 19, whose name was George, had ridden a normally quiet five-year-old called Kruger in the last race of the day. It had been the young jockey's first race, and it proved to be his last. 
The horse fell at the open ditch near Redstone Farmhouse and rolled on him. Young George was killed, but Kruger got up and ran off, and lived many years afterwards. Apparently, the ghostly apparition had only appeared twice since 1945. Meanwhile, it got us here at the archive wondering, was this a true story? For if it was, surely it would be reported in the newspapers at the time. And the shivers ran up our spines when we discovered it was. Just as the old man had said, a jockey called George was killed by his horse Kruger in November of 1900, with the Reading Mercury reporting on the fatal accident to the jockey at Hawthorne Hill steeplechases. All right, number 10, the co-op ghost, Wishaw, North Lanarkshire, 1966. In September of 1966, police were called out to the car park in Wishaw near the electricity board's offices in Hill Street and the co-operative building in Russell Lane. But this was not a usual call-out. Indeed, a group of teenagers at the car park claimed that they had seen a ghost and were so scared by what they saw, as reports the Wishaw Press, that they made a 999 call to police. The police, as can be imagined, were not impressed, the newspaper remarking how. We are not sure what actions the teenagers expected the police to take in apprehending a ghost, but the officer's problem was solved when they discovered on arrival at the scene that the spook was gone. They treated the incident as a near hoax, but of course, they answered the emergency call and put the young minds at rest. The teenagers, who were around 18 at the time, however, were adamant they saw something supernatural. Anne Rankovic, speaking for the group, told the Wishaw Press how, We were standing in the car park when we saw the figure of a woman up at one of the windows in the gable end of the cooperative building in Russell Lane. She had short blonde hair and staring eyes. Everything about her was white. As she watched, she waved her hand as if she was asking us to come up to her. The hand seemed as though it was coming through the glass of the window, although the window was closed. Given the lateness of the hour, it was about 11 o'clock at night. There was no need for anyone to be in the building. Meanwhile, one of Anne's friends actually worked in the building and said that the room they saw the figure in was only ever used for junk and empty boxes. It was little wonder then that the group was scared. But not too scared, however, as the Wishaw Press commented, Anne actually had returned to the car park and had seen the same apparition all over again. All right, very cool stories. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Alright, let's jump back into it with some more spooky stories. We're over at countryliving.com where they have an article, 11 Best Scary Ghost Stories That Will Scare Your Socks Off by Ashley Leith. Number 1. Sloss Furnaces, Birmingham, Alabama. 
Five years after the Civil War, Birmingham, Alabama was founded. With its birth in 1871 came the need for tons of pig iron to fix the U.S.'s crumbling infrastructure, so Colonel James Withers Sloss began to build Sloss Furnaces. A year later, the company opened its doors to hundreds of employees. According to its official website, jobs on blast furnaces were advanced but also dangerous, and many workers started falling to their deaths in the furnaces. By the early 1900s, conditions had worsened with cruel foreman James Slag Wormwood, who took dangerous risks to increase production. According to Reader's Digest, during his tenure at Sloss, nearly 50 employees died on site and many others were involved in terrible accidents. Allegedly, his workers threw him in the furnace in retaliation in 1906. Today, you can still walk the grounds of Sloss Furnaces, if you dare. You may even hear Slag's voice yelling, get back to work, and witness other paranormal experiences. Number two, The Crying Lady in the Dakota, New York, New York. Since its opening in 1884, the Dakota apartment building has been home to many rich and famous residents of New York City. Among them were John Lennon and Yoko Ono, who moved in in 1973. John was also assassinated outside the building in 1980. Before that fateful day in December 8th, though, John said he... John said he say... Uh, he saw a crying lady ghost walking the halls, and afterwards Yoko, who still resides there, claimed she saw John's ghost sitting at his piano, and that he said to her, Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. Oh, that's sweet. I like whenever it's like a glimpse into the after, the great beyond, and they're still there to comfort us here adorable all right number three the bell witch adams tennessee we have covered the bell witch in more detail but let's read the little snippet if you're a scary m movie lover you might actually know about the bell witch the films an american haunting and the blair witch project are both based on the story way back in the early 1800s a man named john bell moved his family to an area in tennessee called red river which is now known as Adams, Tennessee. After they had settled into a new home, some particular things started happening. The Bell family began hearing some bizarre noises, including dogs barking, chains rattling, rats chewing, and a woman whispering. Soon that woman became known as the Bell Witch, and many people believe that she's the ghost of a former neighbor of the Bells, Kate Batts. Bats and the Bells had a dispute over land, and she had sworn vengeance on the Bell family before she died. Later on, Bell died from poisoning, and it's rumored to be the work of the Bell Witch. Number four, the ghost of the Crescent Hotel, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Spend the night at the haunted Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, which opened in 1886. During construction, a worker named Michael was killed, and his ghost reportedly still haunts room 218. The hotel came under the ownership of known medical fraud Norman Baker in 1937, who fancied himself a doctor. He turned the hotel into the Baker Cancer Hospital, claiming to have a cure for the disease. 
He did not, obviously. Patients who died under his care were buried right in the hotel's basement, which served as a makeshift morgue. He was arrested in 1940, but his patient's spirits are said to still remain. Because the hotel is still open, guests often say they see apparitions and hear noises during their stays. Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters even has footage of something moving in the basement. Alright, number five. Hugging, Hugging Molly. Abbeville, Alabama. It's best to stay home when the sun sets in Abbeville. Sorry if I'm ruining that name. Alabama. If you want to avoid Hugging Molly's chilly embrace. I've actually heard of this legend before. As the legend goes, beginning in the early 1900s, an oversized figure clad in all black began roaming the streets at night looking for unsuspecting victims. Once she fixates on someone, she hugs the person and screams loudly in their ears. Many people have recounted stories of being chased by what they believe was Huggin' Molly. Local parents have even taken advantage of the story to keep their children in line. The town embraces its nighttime warden, proudly calling itself Home of Huggin' Molly. There's even a family-friendly restaurant named after her. Number 6. The Surrency House Ghost. Surrency, Georgia. Well, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. Surrency, Georgia. The Surrency clan began experiment or experiencing paranormal activities in the present-day Surrency, Georgia. In the 1870s, family members reported witnessing objects soaring across rooms, hearing laughter and crying, seeing red eyes staring into the house. Food was thrown from their plates and utensils twisted into unusable shapes. The townspeople speculated that these occurrences were cries for help from spirits who thought the family would be able to save them. On the day the family decided to finally leave the house, a fire iron allegedly floated up and started hitting one of the sons on the head. No one was ever brave enough to live in that house again, and the building went up in flames in 1925. Wow, that is so near where, like, my parents grew up in Georgia, so that's pretty cool. Number seven, the ghost of Bellamy Bridge, Mariana, Florida. For a taste of true haunting love, travel over this spooky bridge in Mariana, Florida, which has several ghost legends surrounding the structure. In the 1830s, Elizabeth Jane Kroon Bellamy married local politician Dr. Samuel Bellany. Bellamy. On their wedding night, her dress accidentally caught on fire, which covered the young bride in horrible burns. She initially survived, but eventually passed away. Elizabeth was buried along the banks of the Chipola River, and it was said that her love for her husband was so strong she couldn't rest. The deceased newlywed dressed in white can allegedly be seen on the banks from the vantage point of the bridge, which was built after she died. It is said that she appears on fire, either walking through the swamps or diving straight into the river, as if to douse the flames, or somberly walking along the side of the river. Oh, that's sad. Number 8. The Ghost of Deer Island, Biloxi, Mississippi Back on May 20th, 1922, Anthony Ragusen, a.k.a. Mr. Tony, relayed this tale in a column in the Sun-Herald. 
He writes that in early 1800s, two fishermen spent the night on Deer Island, off Biloxi's coast. They heard noises that they ignored until it became impossible to do so. When they went to see what was causing the ruckus, they claimed they found a headless skeleton that ran after the pair. They immediately made a beeline for their boat and got off the island immediately. It is said that the bony frame belongs to a pirate who had his head chopped off by his captain and his body was left behind as a ghastly guard to watch over buried treasure. Number nine, Zombie Road, Wildwood, Missouri. Outside of St. Louis lies Zombie Road, a hotbed of ghostly activities. There are many scary stories stemming from Lawler Ford Road, its actual name, from sightings of indigenous spirits wandering the stretch to victims of train accidents. There used to be active tracks there, like Della Hamilton McCullough, who was struck by a passing train. In the 1950s, it became a popular late night teen hangout spot, with various murders happening in the area too. It also has been rumored to be the home base of a murderer named Zombie, who escaped a mental institution. These days, the stretch has been rechristened as a nature trail, but is closed once night falls, with hefty fines for those who dare to trespass. Number 10. Dead Woman's Crossing, Weatherford, Oklahoma. This one's a regular murder mystery turned ghost story, according to the Atlas Obscura. In the early 1900s, in Weatherford, Oklahoma, Katie DeWitt James left her home with her baby after she filed for divorce from her husband. She planned to move in with her cousin, but her family never heard from her. After an investigation, it turns out she moved in with a local prostitute, Franny Norton. She was last seen leaving the house with Franny and her child in a carriage. Franny returned with the child, who was covered in blood, but without Katie. Her body was found later, along a nearby creek, with her head cut off. It was rumored that her ex-husband had killed with Franny's help, but Franny claimed she wasn't involved in Katie's death. But on the day she was supposed to be questioned by police, she poisoned herself. Katie's still around, though. She allegedly appears as a blue light floating around the town, and people have reported hearing a woman looking for her baby and the rolling sounds of wheels. And of course, number 11, we've all heard of this one, the Myrtles Plantation, St. Francisville, Louisiana. Of the numerous spirits haunting this plantation built in 1796 in St. Francisville, Louisiana, the most known entity is Chloe, according to official website. It's said that the plantation owner, Clark Woodruff, carried on an affair with an enslaved person, Chloe, which he ended abruptly. She began to eavesdrop on their conversation, and he caught her. As punishment, he cut her ear off. She then poisoned the rest of his family with a birthday cake, leaving him alone. The other enslaved people knew what she had done and hanged her. She supposedly still remains on the property with a photograph from 1992, where her spirit is reportedly visible. All right, very cool. Some of those I've heard before, others were new. So that's pretty cool. All right, we go over to housebeautiful.com and they have an article, 27 of the freakiest real life haunted house stories ever by Hadley Mendelssohn. 
Number one, Amityville Horror House in Amityville, New York. I know we've read about the Amityville Horror before, but many times it was due to its connection with its movie and things that the actors had experienced. So let's let's look at it. All right. This Dutch colonial sitting pretty on Ocean Avenue in Long Island, New York, is perhaps the country's and world's most famous real haunted house. Haunted or not, the Amityville home has certainly witnessed plenty of horrors. In November 13, 1974, Luis and Ronald Defoe, Sr., and four of their children were killed inside the home. Their eldest son, Ronald Defoe Jr., went unharmed, and he was ultimately charged with the murders. A year after the brutal murders, the Lutz family moved into the house, which still housed much of the original furniture and decor from its previous tenants. Then, just 28 days after moving in with their three young children, the Lutzes fled the house in a panic. Not long after, they worked with the author Jay Anson on the best-selling book-turned-movie, The Amityville Horror, which tells the dramatic and controversial tale of the demonic and unseen forces that drove them out. The Lutz's story is widely regarded as a hoax, but plenty of people still vehemently believe that it's haunted, and it was haunted even before the Defoe family lived and died in it. Alright, number two. Ammon's House in Gary, Indiana. In 2011, LaToya Ammons moved into a small single-story home, single home in Gary, Indiana, with her mother and her three children. Only a few short months later, after reportedly experiencing the worst residential demon infestation since the Amityville Horror, Ammons brought her family to the emergency room in an attempt to free them of demonic possession. After extensive evaluations by the police, members of the local church, hospital staff, and the Department of Child Protective Services. The witnesses were torn. Half of them believed the house was infested by spirits and demons, and that the family was genuinely possessed by something paranormal, while the other half blamed psych psychological issues. Just like this best-selling book about the Amityville house turned into a national sensation, this modern instance of demonic possession went viral. The good news is that the Ammons family was able to find peace when they moved to Indianapolis, but the story and the house itself were still getting tons of attention. Unsurprisingly, Ghost Adventures host and self-proclaimed paranormal investigator Zach Bagans bought the property from Ammons' landlord in 2014 to shoot sensationalized documentary footage inside. Even though Bagans proceeded to tear it down, the Ammons' house is about to get even more press. Oscar nominee Lee Daniels is directing a film based on the story, The Deliverance. It's set to stream on Netflix in 2024 and will feature Stranger Things star Caleb McLaughlin. I actually saw a TikTok about this and Zach Bagans was like uh, claiming that it was like one of the most active demonic places that he's ever encountered. And this man has like a whole like occult museum where he tries to get things that are possessed or stuff like that, like the Dybbuk box, for instance, um, things like that. 
And if we have time, we'll get into uh, TikTok about uh, from Post Malone about his experience with Zach Bagan and the Dybbuk box. All right, but let's keep going. Number three, Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. In 1886, an eccentric widow left her home in Connecticut from California's rural Santa Clara Valley to start a new life after the tragic loss of several family members. She wasn't the average widow. She was Sarah Winchester, the millionaire heiress whose fortune was derived from the gun that won the West, an increasingly controversial truth. I know about this story. All right. Once in Bay Area, during the height of spiritualism and well before the 19th Amendment, Winchester managed her own finances and acted on a passion for architecture and design by overseeing the never-ending construction project of a rambling mansion in San Jose. She named the rambling property Lanada Villa, which she interpreted as House on Flat Land but today is better known as the Winchester Mystery House. Her reclusive lifestyle, along with the restrictive gender norms of the era and the blood money she is associated with, caused neighbors and local press to speculate, and the legends quickly began to swirl about the mysterious woman and her bewildering house. Though it was a modern marvel at the time, with indoor plumbing, multiple elevators, a hot shower, and central heating, the mansion was appraised as having no value due to the doors that opened to nothing but thin air, staircases that lead straight into the ceiling, and its maze of labyrinth hallways. Legends began swirling, speculating the Winchester's bizarre architectural choices were an attempt to rid the home of unwelcome spirits of the dead killed by the Winchester rifle. But defenders swear she didn't have superstitious bone in her body, Regardless, it's possible that Winchester herself still haunts the halls of the house-turned-museum today. I would like to go see that one day. Um, but yeah, legend does have it that she was haunted by all the souls and all the people that have ever been killed by Winchester, which would be a lot. <laughs> Alright, let's keep going. Number four, The Limp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri. Starting strong with a very scary house, the Limp Mansion in St. Louis, which is known to be one of the most haunted places in America, due to its tragic history and links to a wealthy beer baron, Adam Jonam Limp, a German immigrant, was the first person to produce and sell lager-style beer in the U.S. He stored the barrels in an underground cave system beneath the city to keep them cool, pre-modern refrigeration. It was successful, but his son, William Limp, is the one who really brought it to the next level. In the 1860s, William Limp wanted to live closer to the industrial plant and started a family with his wife, Julia. So they built the foreboding home in the historic Benton Park neighborhood, right over the cave system. We smell a haunting. Everything seemed to take a turn for the worst in the new millennium, and William Limp died by suicide in 1904 after his favorite of five sons, Frederick, died tragically due to complications of tuberculosis. A few years later, his wife also died of cancer in the house. In 1920, the youngest daughter, Elsa Limp, mysteriously died in her home, not the Limp Mansion. Then in 1922, after running the company for years and seeing it floundering during the Prohibition era, 
William Limp Jr. shot himself in the same room where William Sr. died in. One of William Jr.'s brother, Charles Limp, lived in the house from the 1930s until 1949, when he shot his own dog in the basement of the home before dying by suicide in his room. That same year, the youngest surviving Limp child, Edwin, sold the house and transformed it into a boarding house, where reports of hauntings began. According to Destination America, witnesses have experienced burning sensations, slamming doors, disembodied moaning, crying, among other things. Today, the Limp Mansion is a restaurant and inn that also holds events, including weddings, murder mystery dinners, and even ghost hunting experiences. Kasha House of Kaimuki in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Kasha House of Kaimuki in Honolulu, Hawaii has been shrouded in mystery for decades. Its first bad press mention hit Honolulu Star just months after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. According to the article, police responded to a call from a woman shouting, She's trying to kill my children. She's trying to kill my children. When they arrived, they found a young Hawaiian boy, his three sisters, and his mother all shrieking and being tossed about by nothing. About 30 years later, other occupants of the same house, or a block away from the original spooky house, reported similar attacks by an unseen force, which the responding officers corroborated. The two most common theories surrounding the source of these reported attacks are a demonic shape-shifting creature of Japanese folklore known as the Kasha, and the angry spirit of a corpse buried in the backyard. Though it has since been torn down and replaced by condos, the dark energy still lingers, according to locals and residents. 1000 Lombard Street in San Francisco, California. Socialite, journalist, and famed party host Patricia Montandon moved into an apartment on San Francisco's famous Crooked Block, Lombard Street, in 1960. She lived happily in her Russian Hill abode for eight years until things began to go awry, following an astrology-themed party she hosted in the apartment. In her memoir, The Intruders, Montadon attributes a series of hauntings that culminated in a corporal tragedy to the bizarre behavior of a disgruntled tarot card reader who may have cursed the apartment the night of that fateful party. From eerie laughter and faint music seemingly coming from within the apartment on repeat to constant rushes of cold winds despite locked doors and windows and strange disembodied footsteps, the paranormal events were slacking or were stacking up quickly. But Montadon was also the victim of physical crimes following the party, including a robbery, harassment, possible arson, and more. After a tragic fire at the apartment, and the premature passing of three of her close friends, all of whom had lived separately lived in the apartment, Montanon set off on her own investigation to uncover the root of the apparent curse on 1000 Lombard Street. All right, number seven, Ackley House in Nyack, New York. Nicknamed Ackley House after its one-time occupant, the Ackley family, this classic Queen Anne sits in the, on the Hudson River across from Sleepy Hollow, New York. The many ghosts who roam the halls of one Lavetta place were nothing but friendly, though they were active enough to inspire the matriarch, Helen Ackley, to write a national article about them in Reader's Digest. 
The article gained enough momentum that the house became a stop on local ghost tours, which ended up having some not-so-great ramifications when it came time to sell the home in the late 1980s. The Ackleys found themselves entangled in a legal battle over whether or not they should have disclosed the haunted nature of the house to the Shombotsky family. In a landmark legal decision now referred to as the Ghostbusters ruling, Ackley House was deemed haunted by the New York Supreme Court, and the buyers were able to pull out of the sale, while also getting half of their down payment back. One Levetta place has since been home to several celebrities, including musician Ingrid Michelson. All right, number eight, Chop Chop House in Boise, Idaho. The house at 805 West Linden Street in Boise, Idaho is hard to miss. Covered in a layered soot, in a layer of soot with windows broken and boarded up, and trash strewn about the yard. The two-story, 27-28-square-foot, craftsman-style home looks like an abandoned horror movie set. The true story, however, is much scarier. Locals refer to it as the Boise Murder House, or even more eyebrow-raising, the Chop Chop House, which is a glib reference to the gruesome homicide that took place there more than three decades ago. According to many who have lived in the neighborhood or even rented out a room in the house itself, the basement in particular exudes some haunted energy. There have been reports of shadowy figures appearing and disappearing out of nowhere and strange liquid oozing down the walls and more. This is pretty cool. It sounds a lot like American Horror Story Murder House. Maybe that's where it got its inspiration. It doesn't say so in this article, so let's keep going. The Grand East Hampton estate, known as Grey Gardens, has a fascinating history with many ups and downs. The four acres of land and the home now sits on it in the Georgia Beach section of East Hampton, one of the most expensive regions in the world, and it was purchased by a wealthy couple in 1895 before the home was built in the early 1900s. By 1913, it was sold to the president of a coal company whose wife, Anna Gillum Hill, imported ornate concrete walls from Spain to enclose the garden. The house was called Grey Gardens because the color of the dunes and the cement garden walls and sea mist. Later in 1923, the home was sold to Edith Beale, the parental aunt of Jackie Kennedy and Lee Razawill and her family. After a series of misfortunes and financial losses, the home fell into disrepair and was overrun by cats and raccoons, partially because Big Edie Beale and her daughter Little Edie Beale couldn't afford to maintain the mansion on their own. The women's story was made famous in 1975 documentary by Albert and David Mills, held onto the property until her death in 1977, and her spirit is said to remain at Grey Gardens, watching over the house. Among the believers is author and journalist Sally Quinn, best known for a column in the New York Post, or the Washington Post, who purchased the home from Little Edie in 1979, as she swears it's haunted. All right, let's take a break and get right back into the stories. All right, we're going to hop over to the Happiness Function, where they have an article written this year called Eerie Encounters, 12 Ghost Stories from People Who Work Around Death. All right, let's get into it. This is written by Zobia Shazi. 
those who work in healthcare and other death-related professions witness some of the most intense points in people's lives, but there are also eerie encounters that are less heard of. These interactions are beyond the ordinary or the explained, and the following stories are from workers who deal with death daily. What you take on the experiences shared within these tales. Number one, haunted historic building. One commenter whose family owned a funeral home said that while nothing ever happened at the home itself, they had some freaky experiences at the historic building where they work. These include hair pulling, witnesses witnessing tools slide across the floor on their own, and hearing their full name called repeatedly one night while working alone. Number two, a crying baby and a calming male voice. One ICU nurse describes delivering a stillborn baby during his shift. Later in the elevator, on the way to the morgue, he recalls the sound of a baby wailing. Just as suddenly, a calming male voice begins comforting the baby. This stopped the crying straight away. Upon shakily opening the bag, he saw what he expected, the body of a deceased baby. Number three, guards haunting experience at a haunt at a hospital. Number four, the terrifying night shift. Another worker shared that while on night shift as a junior doctor, they were verifying a death when the patient suddenly lurched forward while checking for signs of life. The event caused everyone to leave the room screaming. Their hearts leaped straight out of their chest. Number five, students haunting experience with embalming. A student shared a bizarre dream about embalming her still alive father, which unnerved her classmates. The next day, while working on an elderly lady with severe arthritis, the, studi the student experienced a chilling moment when the lady's body clenched her hand as she was breaking the rigor. A funeral home employee shared that the building they worked at was said to be haunted by the old funeral director's assistant. The previous director's assistant had a heart attack and passed away years prior. According to The Apprentice, the assistant would mess with the chapel lights. Then, if called out by name, the lights would return to normal. Although The Apprentice was unsure if they truly believed in the haunting, they continued to call out the assistant's name, as it always seemed to fix the issue. Number 7. A Haunting Reflection in the Oncology Ward Number 8. A Spine-Chilling Encounter in a Hospital Unit Someone shared a spooky experience they had while working in a medical unit at a hospital. One night, they saw a man in a hospital gown standing in the doorway of a patient's room. As they got closer, the man turned and went inside the room. When they followed, they couldn't find the man anywhere, despite searching the entire room. Later that night, their co-worker reported feeling like someone was touching her feet while she tried to nap in the break room next to the patient's room. Number nine, a glimpse of the afterlife. Another volunteered their experience of a patient who regained consciousness after being unresponsive for days and said she had seen the other side. The patient told the nurse that they would meet again and that the nurse should go home and rest because she would be gone by morning. The nurse received a call at 3 a.m. that the patient had passed away. The experience changed the nurse's outlook on life. Number 10, firefighting trauma. So I'm going to read that again because I wasn't comprehending it when I read it. But it sounds to me, and I'll just keep, I'll just read the original, but it sounds to me like the he stepped on the corpse and the corpse came flailing up at him but let's read that again the colleagues accidentally the colleague accidentally stepped on a badly burned corpse's sternum which caused the remains to crunch 
The remains also came up at the firefighter with its burned up arms flailing. The experience was highly traumatic and required the colleague to seek counseling. One recalled their mom's experience as an RN in Old Virginia Hospital ER in the mid-80s. There were two famous paranormal stories among the nurses, The Man in the Hat and Patient One. The Man in the Hat was believed to be an omen of death, while the woman in the old hospital gown, Patient One, was a sign that a patient might code soon. Number 12, The Haunting Ringtone. Lastly, a person said they turned off the ringer on their phone while their dad was in the hospital. They fell asleep and woke up to the sound of the doorbell ringing about 1 a.m., but found no one at the door. When they turned on their phone, the hospital called to inform them that their dad had passed away and asked permission to harvest some of his organs for transplant. We Salted Nanny, A True Southern Ghost Story by Tom Maxwell. In September of 2014, Tom Maxwell moved with his family into a large historic home in Hillsborough, North Carolina. With its affordable rent and lush surroundings, it seemed too good to be true. Nine months later, they broke their lease, loaded up the truck, and ran away as fast as they could from the spirits and apparitions that had tortured them. Only afterwards would Maxwell learn about the 300 years of bad mojo that had piled up in the house they called Nanny. This is the story we salted Nanny, Southern Ghost Story. Brooke and I were on vacation when we noticed the headaches had gone. We had moved into the house on, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina only three weeks before and knew it was time to leave. It had mold and was making us sick. One bright summer day, we packed two bags, a guitar, and the cat in our car and realized we had no place to sleep. We accepted a friend's offer to crash in nearby Hillsboro and started to look for a new rental. The historic house we saw in the ad was big and strangely cheap. The website featured only a couple of out-of-focus pictures, so we walked over to the property and were shocked. It was an enormous place, wonderfully situated. She had five fireplaces and wide-room floorboards, which ran in waves across the ancient rooms. The land was spacious, rolling pastures and old, spreading hardwoods. The Eno River ran placidly only 100 yards to the south, part of its 40-mile meander from its source to its convergence with the noose. Indeed, the house sat snug inside the tenderloin of land and bound on three sides by a river's horseshoe. We could walk to Hillborough's modest downtown, but felt as if we were in the country. The night sky was dark and thick with stars. We moved in September 3rd. The house was, man was mansion big, but still country. It's outside a calm and peeling yellow. The kitchen's addition on the north side was far too big with a large stone fireplace in the center, cheap appliances on one side. The narrow, uneven stairs led to a warren of second-floor rooms. Claustrophobic hallways emptied into cramped bathrooms. Apart from some built-in bookshelves in the living room, the only thing fancy about the house was its exterior. Inside, it was plain, even a little severe. It had a musty, stale smell which we set about cleaning away. We named the house Nanny, after the wife of its former owner. We were looking for refuge in the name of a comforting double meaning, Nanny of history and Nanny to take care of us. Down by the river, there was some historic markers describing the land as once belonged to Native American tribes. It was easy to see the land as hunting grounds. There were catfish, gar, and minnows in the river. Frogs and box turtles dotted its banks. Persimmon, ulsage orange and mulberry flowered in spring coming in summer fruition 
The pastures were lined with hardwoods, white oak, red oak, willow oak, maple, redwood, magnolia, tulip poplar, and dogwood flowers dotted the forest in spring and early summer, and long gone, but fox and wild turkey were not. Families of deer grazed around our house, the spotted fawns keeping close to their mothers. There were so numerous, we called the, them the deer people. You had only to reach out your hand to grasp a little of this plenty. The old sturdy house, set on rolling pasture land alongside a placid river, appeared safe and calm. It was not. Nanny and the land around her was thoroughly haunted. In less than a year, we would break the lease, performing a binding ritual, and leave. English explorer John Lawson wrote extensively about North Carolina's indigenous people. In 1701, he visited the Okanichi tribe in their little town surrounded by the Eno River, only a few yards from where Nanny would be situated. The Akoneki, as Lawson called them, Akoneki, as Lawson called them, had been displaced from their Atlantic coastal home on Roanoke Island, where they controlled the deerskin trade and coined a common language by a militia attack in 17, 1670. In their new Piedmont village, a dozen or so wigwams surrounded a sweat lodge set in the central plaza. A defensive stockade encircled the town with cemeteries outside the gates, testament to the destructive power of the Iroquois war parties and European disease. Still, the Okanichi had done well for themselves. Lawson was unreserved in his praise. About three o'clock, we reached the town, and the Indians presently brought us good fat bear and venison, which were very acceptable at the time, Lawson wrote. Their cabins were hung with good sort of tapestry, as fat bear and barbecued and dried venison, no Indians having greater plenty of provisions than these. The savages do indeed still possess the flower of Carolina, and the English enjoying only the thing of that fine country. All was going to change. Creeping south from Virginia and north from North South Carolina, the Europeans finally gained full possession of Charles II's extensive land grant of 1663. The country's throw which we passed, was so delightful, Lawson wrote of trip visit the Okanichi, that it gave us a deal of satisfaction. By 1722, the remnants of the Okanichi and other Piedmont tribes decimated by disease, warfare, and rum moved northeast to seek protection in Virginia's Fort Christiana. A few sagging thatch huts stood a hundred yards from the house we had just chosen to rent reconstructed to remember the tribe's brief tenure. Scotland's economy had collapsed by the end of the 18th century. Squatters and vandals roamed the land, some of them visiting the highland farms of James Hogg and Caithness. The people in my neighborhood were extremely addicted to theft and pilfering and the constant attendance of slavery and poverty, Hogg wrote in a letter in 1774. I was fond of improvements in agriculture. I sowed field turnips, but they were stolen before they came to perfection. I sowed peas and was happy if they left me the straw. My potatoes and carrots suffered in like manner, and in short, I found it impossible to save anything from their rapacity. To my complete disgust, Hogg wrote, in the end of 1771, a ship belonging to R Liverpool loaded with iron, deals, and flax was driven ashore inside of my house. Active assistance to save the wreck and cargo from plunder. 
and in return barely escaped with his family when their house was set on fire in revenge. Had my situation in other respects been agreeable, I should not have been easily prevailed upon with so young a family, and at the time of my life, to leave my native country and expose myself and my family to fatigue and dangers of a long voyage in order to settle in an unhealthy climate in the woods of North Carolina. But by the barbarity of the country where I lived, I was in a manner forcibly expelled. A list of murders, robberies, and thefts committed with impunity there during my residence in Caithness would surprise a Mohawk or a Cherokee. James Hogg and his family made it to America, then North Carolina, and ultimately Hillsboro, where they would no longer be victimized by di the disadvantage. Hogg became a participant in the largest private sale of land in the country's history, a naked, extra-legal grab of Cherokee hunting grounds west of the Appalachian Mountains. Hogg joined the Transylvania Company in 1775, led by a former judge, Richard Henderson. In 1771, the same year Hogg defended the shipwreck from looters, Henderson was presiding judge over the trial and execution of six regulators. The regulator movement was an early form of backwoods rebellion, objecting over unfair colonial taxation and corruption. Once released from the bench in 1773, Henderson was free to pursue his burning ambition of land speculation. The Transylvania Company's goal through acquisition and settlement of the wildlands to the west was no less than to create the 14th colony. In January and February of 1775, James Henderson and some colleagues met around met with around 1,200 Cherokee who gathered in Tennessee for a great council. In the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals, as it became known, the aboriginals were given six wagons loaded with liquor, guns, ammunition, blankets, and trinkets in exchange for some 20 million acres, making up the modern-day Kentucky and eastern Tennessee. This name is hard to say, but it's Siugunsini. He is dragging his canoe. A young chief from the Wolf Clan objected to this European expansion. Whole Indian nations have melted away like snowballs in the sun before the white man's advance, he said on the second day of negotiating. Such treaties may be all right for men who are too old to hunt or fight. As for me, I have my young warriors about me. We will hold our land. Things reached a breaking point when the colonists asked for even more territory, a path deed, as a conduit for settlement. We have given you this. Why do you ask for more? Dragon Canoe demanded. When you have this, you have all. There is no more game left between the Watuga and the Cumberland. You have bought a fair land, but there is a cloud hanging over it. You will find its settlement dark and bloody. Dragon Canoe and his warriors then left the meeting in protest. According to Indian history, the man who would blaze the path deed trail, Daniel Boone, helped seal the Sycamore deal by plying the remaining older chiefs with whiskey. Okanastoda and Raven Warrior were made so drunk that their interpreter had to guide their hands in order to sign the treaty. According to white history, the liquor was rum, not whiskey, and the colonists virtuously kept it from the Indian reach until the agreement was executed. English explorer, explorer John Lawson had already noted the effects of alcohol on the in Indian population in Dece December of 1700. Rum, he wrote, a liquor now so much in use with them that they will part with the dearest thing they have to purchase it. 
The proposed 14th colony founded on the land newly gained was to be called Transylvania. James Hogg was dispatched to Philadelphia to negotiate official recognition from the Continental Congress. The petition was never considered. The treaty was seen as illegal by the English crown as well as the colonies of Virginia and North Carolina, both of which ultimately avoided the claim. According to European law, the Cherokee could not own land and were thus incapable of selling any. In the meantime, Daniel Boone blazed the wilderness trail through the Cumberland Gap, creating a highway for settlement to the west. Brooke's mother came to visit in autumn. She stayed in the upstairs bedroom on the left. Its doorframe sagged away from the raised middle of the north side addition, as did the one on the adjacent bedroom, giving the impression of a worried brow. There was nothing in this room save a blocked-off arch which once connected the two rooms, and a large cobwebbed window, letting in a dreary light. The wood floor inclined towards the window, dotted with spider holes. At night, Brooke's mother heard knocking on the wall, separating the two bedrooms. The knocks came slowly, in threes, and were left unanswered. A few days later, Brooke and her mother went for a walk. As they passed the pasture in front of the house, Brooke noticed from her periphery a figure standing under a small maple about 20 yards away. She turned her head to see a woman staring at them. The woman's hand was against the tree. She wore a white bonnet, a white smock, and a long brown dress. Brooke looked at the woman for a moment. Then the woman wasn't there anymore. A day after Halloween, Brooke stood near the boxwood bushes on the west side of the house. It was a cold morning, and our new dog, Pugsley, needed to go out. Brooke was still wearing a red devil's cape from the night before. Someone came, or someone called her name from the dark band of trees a few yards away. Brooke? The female voice was tentative. Its pitch was neither high or low, but a combination of both. A single voice, spoken in octaves. Brooke answered the first entreat, thinking we had a visitor and embarrassed to still be in costume. The voice called again, closer this time. Brooke? In the weeks to come, the paranormal events increased. Brooke and Evelyn, my daughter, often saw a woman in a white bonnet walking from the east side of the house around the front porch. This was her routine. The things outside that presented as human always moved in repetition. From a window in the kitchen, I saw a man in buckskin walk quickly to the back of the shed. Brooke saw him too, another time. She also saw a man in a gray jumpsuit mount invisible stairs into the southern sky. Other outside things were not readily identifiable as human, moved around the perimeter of the house counterclockwise. One mild November evening, as I gathered firewood by the shed in the light of the full moon, I looked over to see a vertical cigar-shaped shadow, about five feet tall, and a foot off the ground, floating silently away from me, towards the back of the house. I stood there, naked, with an armload of wood, and watched it for a second or two. It took to register that the thing was actually there, a real column of tapered shadow, illuminated by porch light, gliding away from me like a spinning top. I calmly walked inside the house, locked the back door, and cursed extravagantly. Afterwards, I realized that in order to be on that trajectory, the thing must have moved behind me unnoticed. Some weeks later, we stood on the severe front porch on a cold night. 
The original porch was made from wood and was level with the front doors. This porch was brick and possessed several and positioned several feet below the entrances. Precarious brick steps led to each front door. Opening the screen door almost made you drop off the stoop. We stood on the uneven brick waiting for our dog to pee. He suddenly strained the leash, pulling Brooke to the west side of the porch, nearing a dark little band of trees by the shed. Out of the black, a tan figure advanced. It had bowed legs, or bowed legs and no head. It shimmied towards Brooke in a crouch, whipping its long, thin arms like tentacles. Then it receded back into the trees. If it weren't so terrifying, it would have been funny, she told me. It was dancing, as if to get my attention. These figures were aggressive, but not malevolent. Their purpose seemed twofold, to make us know that they were there, and that we could do nothing about them. Alright, back to the storytelling. In the years after the Transylvania purchase, Dragon Canoe became the face of the opposition to westward expansion. He preyed upon the wave of pioneers traveling in the wilderness road, earning the name Savage Napoleon. He died on March 1st after dancing all night in celebration of a newly formed tribal alliance. Back in Hillsboro, James Hogg built a house on the north side of the Eno River in 1794. Near the Okanichi village, John Lawson had described almost a hundred years before. It was a large two-story eye house with floors of first-growth pine. Two rooms were set over Two rooms were set over two rooms with big chimneys on either side. On the front, a large porch was built in the plantation style. It was simple it, if outsized, place one which Hogg had only a few years to enjoy. He called his new house the Farm Banks of the Eno. The house James Hogg built stood for centuries, even as his first Hillborough house crumbled into the earth. He would see additions and half-hearted renovations and would be moved once only a few hundred yards as the crow flies. It would also collect inside and out an absolute army of paranormal inhabitants. Maybe they accrued like emotional residue on this usurious intent of its several owners. It can't help, at least in the cultural imagination, that it stands quite literally on Indian burial ground. This was Nanny, the house of our short, terrible tenancy. Alright, we are still reading about the house named Nanny and how it was built way back in the day by James Hogg and kind of how the land was settled and stolen from Native Americans and all the other stuff that we're hearing about. Now, James Hogg that built the house, he died in 1804, and his house would be in inhabited by Hogs for another 90 years or so. So, fast forward to the winter of 2014, uh, where we're talking about the, you know, uh, current owners, or not current, but the ones telling the story um, that stayed there briefly. Um, and let's jump into it. All right. The hauntings increased with the passing months. Misty forms would rise from the floorboards in the broad daylight and move about the room with their own volition. They didn't look like smoke as much as water vapor and came and went as they pleased. We all saw headlights in the driveway, but no corresponding cars ever appeared. The distinct scrape of the mudroom door opening would be heard, even when the door upon inspection remained locked. Evelyn and Brooke increasingly heard their names being called. 
Evelyn, a female voice would say. Come here. Almost sounds like a mimic. <laughs> if she was upstairs, it would come from below. Brooke once heard Evelyn's voice calling her from downstairs and walked downstairs to answer. She called Evelyn's name and Evelyn answered from her upstairs bedroom. The side door locks rattled frantically one night as the three of us sat alarmed in the living room. Occasionally, men's voices could be heard downstairs, speaking in hushed and excited tones. They stopped as someone reached the bottom of the stairs, though. We shared a growing feeling that we were to be split up, one from another. Something was trying to isolate us. A hard winter was bearing down, and the first cord of wood got burned up in less than a month. We dressed Nanny up like a pagan hunting lodge that Christmas twining pine garland up the banister and hanging enormous evergreen and holly wreaths on the bare dining room walls. We fed stacks of wood into the hearth on both ends of the house, the west side living room and east side dining room, until the warmth met in the middle archway. The intense heat from the fire bricks kept you from getting closer than an apron's edge. We invited as much family as could fit, eating and drinking our fill. It was an extravagance we could afford only once. The ghost left us alone until we were once again by ourselves. Right, flashing back to June of 1865. Before he finished his studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Julian Shakespeare Carr enlisted in the Confederacy. He served as a private in the 3rd North Carolina Calvary, until South's military capitulation the following year. Carr was paroled along with the rest of Robert E. Lee's shattered army. 100 yards from where we stand, less than 90 days perhaps after my return from Appomattox, Carr bragged in 1913 when giving a speech on the UNC campus. He said, I horsewhipped a derogatory word, winch until her skirt hung in shreds because upon the streets of the quiet village she had publicly insulted and maligned a southern lady then rushed for protection to these university buildings where was stationed a garrison of a hundred federal soldiers i performed the pleasing duty in the immediate presence of the entire garrison and for 30 nights afterwards slept with a double barrel shotgun under my head after the war, Carr received a $4,000 loan from his father to purchase interest in the Durham Tobacco Company, trading on the famous Bull Durham logo, and ultimately acquiring dozens of other businesses. Carr soon became very wealthy. In 1891, Carr and his wife, Nanny, bought James Hogg's old 663-acre farm. Nanny called the house Poplar Hill. Carr hired... Jules Corner to redecorate Hogg's Plain Farmhouse. Corner, under the alias Reuben Rink, was responsible for the Bull Durham tobacco logos. These became famous because Rink painted bulls with huge balls on the outdoor ads. Then he would write letters to the local paper posing as an outraged citizen. Once the whole town came out to see this affront to decency, Rink would return and paint an obscure fencing over the offending bullocks. 
Most Bull Durham ads show the fence, along with gratuitous and deeply racist depictions of, again, a derogatory term. My, exclaims one watermelon-eating grotesque. These sure am sweet tastin'. Wow, that's racist. Corner-dressed popular poplar hill up to resemble a stereotypical Greek revival plantation with the widow's walk, huge porch columns, and a shadow balcony. He inserted French windows into the downstairs and created two formal entrances along the wide front porch. This reinvention was consistent with Julian Carr's life. He was an unreconstructed racist, a prominent in the mythical lost cause movement, which by the early 20th century was beginning to rewrite the history of the South and its defeat. Because of his support of the Confederate veteran causes, Carr was promoted to the honorary rank of Major General. In his later years, he was often seen dressed in his gaudy Confederate officer uniform of his rank, one he never came close to attaining during the actual wartime service. Seeing him now in this grainy black-and-white picture sitting on Poplar Hill's front porch with Nanny and other family, a portly dress-up general, secure in his fake plantation home, an open racist, Colonel Sanders prototype. The present generation, I am persuaded, scarcely takes note of what the Confederate soldier meant to the welfare of the Anglo-Saxon race during the four years immediately succeeding the war. Carr boomed to the crowd in 1913, when the facts are that the courage and steadfastness saved the very life of the Anglo-Saxon race in the South. The cult of the lost cause was, if anything, about appearance over reality. Confederate veterans beginning to die off in droves by the second decade of the new century were recast as hale and watchful statues, just like the one Carr dedicated on the University of North Carolina campus, placed in front of courthouses and other seats of political power. The real North Carolina rebels were in fact half-starved scarecrows, fed into that terrible maw of sufficient numbers as to make up a quarter of all Confederate casualties. Their corpses didn't bloat and rot like their better-fed Union counterparts, but rather simply turned to leather in the sunny fields of Cold Harbor and other killing grounds. Carr built a rail railroad spur across the country from his new farm, or across the road from his new farm, so his wealthy friends from the city could come visit for weekend parties. Okanichi Farm, as he called his new estate, that would be such a slap in the face, <laughs> turned into a big operation with Carr as its titular gentleman's farmer. There are a few surviving pictures of the actual farm workers. They're all black, naturally, and cleaned up to look postcard pretty, scowling cherubs holding shiny milk pails. A tornado struck Okanichi Farm in 1919, doing terrible damage. Poplar Hill was unscathed, but the farm never recovered. Within a few years, Julian Carr lost his fortune and his health, and in 1923, real estate listing for Okanichi Farm included a large sheep barn, a large piggery with several breeding pens, a concrete-floored dairy barn with 56 stanchions, five poultry houses, and three-story barn with a slate roof, oak floors, and stalls for 36 horses, and a basement for mules. Julian Carr died in 1924, 
Okanichi Farm was sold and sub- subdivided. The subsequent tenants of Poplar Hill mostly remembered freezing in the winter. They shut off entire sections of the place, living in one or two rooms to conserve firewood. As the decades passed, the house began to fall to neglect. February 2015. Back to our storytellers. We too froze that winter, often sick, broke, and huddled in front of a fire in a small upstairs room. Although we kept the thermostat at 55 degrees, our February gas bill was still over $700. There was some talk of a cracked heat exchanger, but nothing was done until the old outside unit stopped working altogether in early summer. Inside the house, you could see the packed dirt between cracks in the floorboards. The pipes froze twice. We began feeding scraps of vegetables and fruit to the deer people who looked more miserable than us. At first, Brooke would put the food on the ground and leave, but the deer, generally used to humans, were not afraid. Soon the animals were eating the food in her presence. Back to 17, or what is it? 1978? Alright. After a half a century of decline, Poplar Hill was saved in by James Freeland, the Walt Disney of Hillsborough. A colorful real estate developer, Freeland already had great success with Daniel Boone Village, a kind of strip mall theme park featuring a small railroad, a wax museum, an ice skating rink, a burlap sap ride, and a real bison. Freeland commissioned a large fiberglass statue of Boone, chubby and holding a flintlock, to stand guard at the entrance. Gone is the canonical coonskit hat. This Boone was a frontier hat pinned up at the front like a Disney sidekick. He leans forward and looks drunk. He stands there still by old Highway 86 holding his gun like a drum major's baton. In 1978, Freeland began to pursue other business angle. He relocated to Caswell County House George Washington had slept in and made it a Mexican restaurant called Pueblo Viejo. Freeland had similar plans with Poplar Hill. He wanted to move it to the south side of the Eno, just yards from the old Indian settlement, and turned it into the Okanichi Steakhouse. Verbal assurances from the town elders appeared to trump zoning laws. Hillsborough, like so many other historic North Carolina towns, was preserved through penury. No one had any money to destroy landmarks through renovation or displacement. At most, kitchen or bathroom additions to old houses were tacked on during the Depression, often built right onto the ground to save the expense of laying a foundation. Very old houses like Poplar Hill continued throughout most of the 20th century without plumbing or electricity, with nothing but inefficient fireplaces to heat them. Many abandoned to rot and were simply torn down. So in 1980, Poplar Hill's roof was removed, and the remaining house was cut into large pieces and slowly moved to its ancient, from its ancient location. A picture of it looming over the moving truck as it crossed the river made the paper. Freeland had carefully prepared the site. The house was situated facing the river and surrounded by maples, poplars, and stone retaining walls. Japanese pagoda trees ran in line along the road, In a historically ironic twist, 
Freeland sighted the house only a few yards from where the six regulators condemned to death by Transylvania Company founder Richard Henderson were hanged in 1771. The relocation of Poplar Hill, however, was coincident with bad news. A growing number of citizens alarmed at this perceived threat to Hillsborough's historic district disallowed Freeland's proposed steakhouse. The house was set on its new foundation and put back together, although not in a way that was entirely consistent with its historical nature. A hurried plumbing addition was tacked onto the west side, just large enough for some small upstairs bathrooms with low ceilings and plastic showers inserts. An incongruent picture window was framed into the ground floor mudroom. The original fireplace mantles probably sold off or were replaced with fairly plain and badly constructed substitutes. The original 12 over 12 windows sat warped in their frames. There was a series of renters before us. Most moved out fairly quickly, unable to afford the utility bills. Nanny was not a house that could be heated. All right, back to March 2015. Just so you know, a local friend told me conspiratorially one day that place is known as the Rape House. Several years before we moved in, he told me a local bartender lived there with his mother. This man would supposedly roofie women at work, bring them back to Nanny, and assault them. He was never charged, but was beat up and run out of town. The rapes happened in one of the upstairs bedrooms. The one, it turned out, Brooke's mother stayed in for months, or stayed in months before. My friend was considering moving in after our lease was up and asked one of the victims to consider moving in with him. She stood in the doorway of that room and the one of her assault as a way of finding her answer. No, she said after a moment. I can't live in a house where I was raped. We didn't know if the rape house story was true, but it made a terrible kind of emotional sense. There were several female spirits, mostly contained to the north side of the house, the part Julian Carr added on. Evelyn saw a tall, gray-haired lady peering at us admiringly from the kitchen doorway. She was interested in us, almost as if she longed to join us in the living room by the fire, Evelyn told me. I saw her for a full second before I looked at you and Brooke. When I looked back, she was gone, of course. Her hair was gray, about shoulder length. She was incredibly tall. Her head was at the top of the doorway, which was almost, or which was over six feet tall. I didn't see her clothes or body, only her head peeking around the corner. After noticing that you and Brooke hadn't seen her, I got up angry and rushed into the kitchen, ready to confront whatever was spying on us. The room was cold, and that wasn't out of character for Nanny, but the kitchen was empty. We suspected this was the entity that would follow people into the kitchen and stand behind them as they looked in the fridge. You could hear the floorboards creak as it came. Once, when Evelyn and Brooke cursed the ghost, a bottle of baby shampoo was flung violently across the room. One night, Evelyn had a sleepover. She didn't tell her friend about the hauntings. I went downstairs into the yawning expanse of a kitchen to make popcorn for the girls. The first batch burned, so I settled on the living room couch while the second was made. Brooke was showering in the master bath. Evelyn and her friend heard the door handle jiggle. Then they heard our bedroom door being flung open across the landing. They thought it was me. Brooke thought the same. She got out of the shower and through a wall mirror saw the bottom of a long skirt and a woman's bare feet walking away. 
Brooke described the figure as monochromatic, a bluish gray scale. Evelyn called my name and I answered from downstairs. Brooke, pursuing the figure, ran to the landing in a towel. When I came upstairs with a big bowl of popcorn, everyone stared at me, confused. That night, Evelyn's friend woke up to see a female figure standing in their room. It loomed over the bed as if expecting us to move or notice her. Evelyn told me, fully bent. It was horrifying. The woman stood outside the bathroom as Brooke took a shower, visible from a mirror. One day, we came home to see all of the bathroom cabinets flung open. Brooke and Evelyn's tampons were gone and never found. As the nature and intensity of the hauntings increased, an elongate man appeared downstairs. Almost two-dimensional in his flatness, he would peep at you from around corners or just through doorways, just inside your peripheral vision, and when you looked at him, he would flash a toothy smile and flatten into the wall and vanish. Scratches appeared on Brooke's back several times, before my eyes as we showered. A hooded thing with long, thin arms began standing over Brooke as we slept. We discussed the possibility of the night hag syndrome, a particularly unpleasant type of sleep paralysis. Whatever it was, it was recurring and utterly terrifying. The thing's hands that were hook-shaped and its arms looked like black vinyl, it had red eyes. Later on, it would appear near the fireplace, almost as if it had come down the chimney and walked towards the bed where Brooke lay, horrified and unable to move. It would disappear once she was able to scream. All right, May 1984. Between 1983 and 1986, the Okanichi village described by John Lawson almost 300 years before was found and investigated by the research laboratories of anthropology at the University of North Carolina. The site seemed to be well-preserved, the reporter read, with no evidence of disturbance other than shallow plowing. The digging took place just yards from Nanny. The team uncovered post holes for the palisade wall, storage pits, the remains of houses, as well as the interior rock-filled pit and the sweat house. The team also found a little cemetery just outside the walls on the northeast side of the village. Fourteen graves were recovered, mostly young males killed violently. One appeared to have been scalped. Another of indeterminate sex still had flattened lead ball embedded in his leg from a gunshot. He or she was buried with the iron, with an iron hoe. Other skeletons were found with musket firing mechanisms and kelopin pipes placed carefully beside them. Several children's graves were also ex excavated. They were buried alongside bundles of valuables, latent spoons, bone-handled knives, iron scissors, and lead buttons. Cut shells were scattered around their bodies. One wore a necklace of glass beads, another an anklet of little brass bells. In the first excavation, most human remains were kept in situ, but some bones were removed to the conservatory lab. In 1986, according to the landowner's wishes, skeletal remains were left in place. The landowner lived across the street from Nanny. There was much evidence of death feasting at the cemetery site, one of which the anthropologists associated with the Busk Cemetery. Practiced with near universality by Southeastern Indians, 
It was a ceremony of renewal, often associated by death, in which the sacred fire would be rekindled in every hearth, old debts and grudges forgiven, and old food and clothing discarded. Thus would the community be renewed. This particular little town had many opportunities for this ritual in its short history. The Okanichi, though in possession of many European trade items at this time, adhered to their prehistoric substances practices. Although they ate little pig and peach, their diet mostly considered of maize, fruit, nuts, seeds, fish, and white-tailed deer. This is what the anthropologists found in abundance near the burial pits. April of 2015. As spring approached, Brooke took the hard little pumpkins we had been using as doorstops and chucked them in the backyard to feed the deer people. They came to eat from the border bands of trees as usual. One day, I was just outside the driveway, Brooke told me, and I saw someone standing up on the northern slope in the back of the house. It freaked me out. I turned to look, and it ran behind the big oak tree. It was a man, naked save for the animal skin pants. He was dark with long dark hair. When it came out from behind the tree, it was a young buck, Brooke said. The thing that ran behind the tree was clearly bipedal. The deer was now 10 feet from Brooke and moving towards her. I nodded to it and it bowed to me, not in a threatening way, but as a way of saying I acknowledge you. Brooke reached out her hand, but the animal calmly turned and walked back into the screen of newly leafed trees whence it came. July 2015. Nine months in, exhausted and traumatized by the house, we decided to break the lease. By this time, we had little nicknames for our tormentors, such as Smokey, Spaghetti Arms, The Spook Parade, Bonnet Lady, Smiley, Buckskin Man, Kitchen Lady, The Upstairs Thing. It was an attempt to control through humor, but the reality was that we were living lives with the attenuated dread waiting for the next, ever more threatening incident. We had become energetic chattel, carefully split off and preyed upon by the true inhabitants of that place. The house began life as the as banks of the Inyo for a man who immigrated across the ocean to freely use people the way he had been used. Poplar Hill was a vocal proponent for the lost cause and an enthusiastic member of the ownership class. The rape house became another man's monstrous exploitation, and finally nanny for us, a transient family looking for a home and not finding one. However, that house was built, and for whatever purpose it was augmented and repositioned, it had become a bedlam for bad energy, negative feelings and experiences and intentions that got stuck in that place, or made distorted and made it manifest. Shadowy tulpas darted around Nanny's perimeter, maybe because she had been plopped down onto that venerated land with the nuisance of a cinder block or the nuance of a cinder block tossed into a stream. She only looked like she belonged. Appearances never transcend reality. As I paused in the downstairs hall while loading the moving truck, I saw a black form flitting between boxes in the living room. It moved in a blur as fast as thought appearing to hide even as it wantonly revealed itself. As I described it to Brooke and Evelyn, my voice rose to a kind of a hysterical shriek. We salted Nanny when we left. We didn't know about the salt covenant in the Old Testament, nor was that our tribe. 
We didn't know about the ancient ritual of salting newborn babies for protection. We didn't know that salt is a key ingredient in hoodoo and hotfoot powder. The place needed to be cleansed and sealed. We gathered in the mudroom per Brooke's instructions, each holding a box of salt, forming a restive single file. Pouring some salt onto our palm, we threw it over our left shoulder on the way out the door, as you do when wanting to get that thing off your back. We crossed the threshold one at a time and did not look back. We did not re-enter the house. We will never re-enter that house. Once outside, walking clockwise, we ran in a thick line of salt around Nanny's perimeter, coating every threshold and windowsill, one person's part reinforced by the one coming after. It was an ageless ceremony, intuitively remembered. It was done as a binding and a rebuke, as an acknowledgement of an impossible shared reality. We finished the salting with a cry of triumph, and probably something along the lines of, F you, buddy. I walked behind the house and climbed into the moving truck, parked just yards from where I saw that floating shadowy thing from the previous year. Evelyn and Brooke, still out front, lingered by the mudroom stoop, where the salt line began and ended. They stood in silence for a moment, looking at the house. Brooke noticed a growing look of shock on Evelyn's face and turned to see movement inside the mudroom's picture window. A white, vaporous thing resolved into view. Do you see what I see? asked Evelyn. I think so. Is it the outline of a tall figure? said Brooke. Yep. The apparition looked like heat waves off hot asphalt. It flitted from one corner to the other, pacing like an angry woman. Its movements became more furious as Brooke and Evelyn got in the car and drove away. Then it receded, along with the house. No one turned their head to look back. We made, this is July of 2016. We made no effort to document our experience in Nanny. It was a horrible memory, best forgotten. Brooke, Evelyn, and I moved to New Orleans, a wantingly haunted place. And one night, when the conversation turned to ghosts, we related our own story. It took the better part of an hour, and we looked at each other amazed at forgotten incidents that were recovered and corroborated. I knew about Julian Carr because I wrote a piece for Al Jazeera America after Dylan Roof killed the black congregants of a church in Charleston. A confederate on every corner detailed the many rebel memorials erected in the South in the 1910s and 20s, many of which were situated in front of public seats of power instead of parks or graveyards. It was, as General Carr took pains to point out, a clear political statement. I didn't know about John Lawson, James Hogg, and the Transylvania Company, or much about James Freeman or the Okanichi. My understanding resembled shallow plow marks on unexcavated field. What lied beneath us, for us, was a compressed story of exploitation and displacement. Though supposedly long buried, it found its way to the surface, and we were there to bear terrible witness. All right, very cool. Again, that was by Tom Wax or Tom Maxwell. Very cool story. All right, let's take a break and close it out. All right, 
to close out our episode, I wanted to, as I promised, uh, get into some of Zach Bagan's uh, haunted locations, and then, of course, that story about Post Malone. So let's listen. Did you know? The Ghost Adventures crew will never visit these locations again, according to Zach Baggins. The first is the Demon House in Gary, Indiana. It was here that a series of demonic possessions occurred, allegedly leaving team members, including Baggins, with vision problems. He eventually had the structure demolished. I have no intention to go back to that land. It was a demonic virus, Baggins says. Everybody asks, why didn't you keep it up? and allow other paranormal investigators in there? Well, did you see what happened to all of us? The other two locations Bagan says will never again be seen on the show anytime soon are the Goatman's Bridge in Denton, Texas, and McGraven Mansion in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I've been to a lot of different demonic places, but in those locations, it seemed like it was really just affecting those people, Bagan says. Those were some of the most terrifying moments of my life. What was the scariest location you've ever been? Let us know by leaving a comment. All right. So that was about haunted locations that even uh, Ghost Adventures star Zach Bagans is not <laughs> wanting to go back to just by the way that they were affected by things there. And then this is about the Dybbuk box. I'm friends with Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures. In his museum, so apparently there's a thing called the Dybbuk box, which is a, one of the most haunted items in the world, apparently. And he wanted to, so we took the glass case off of the Dybbuk box, which is in his museum in Vegas. And he thought it was a sick-ass idea to put the ashes of a lady who died while she was possessed on top. Wow. My plane almost crashed. I was in a car accident. My house got robbed, and I had bite marks on my arm. He hit the wall like, like I've never seen someone in fear so hard as whenever he touched it. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's someone who's dead or if it's a demon or if it's fucking something dimensional. I'm friends with Zach Baggins. All right, so in that clip, it kind of shows the moment whenever Zach Bagan uh, puts the ashes on top of the Dybbuk box and actually touches the box. And then it shows Post Malone, like, reacting whenever Zach Bagans kind of takes a step back, like, oh, something just happened, you know. And then you see Post Malone, like, he's touching Bagan, and Bagan had touched the box. And so Post Malone was basically telling us that he had really bad luck and bad stuff started happening after that experience. So... <laughs> I thought those would be some cool uh, TikTok things to kind of close us out today. And I'm sure we're going to do another episode on hauntings and stuff like that in the, you know, this month uh, before we get to Halloween. So thank you for listening today. Um, take all the stories that we heard today um, and decide for yourself whether you believe in this kind of thing or not. Otherwise, it is entertaining. Nonetheless, I feel like I learned so much about our history and not only that, but like really sorted American history 
by looking up these ghost stories. So if anything, they're teaching history that we did not learn about. <laughs> so I think just in that, it has value in and of itself, these stories. So with that being said, make sure that you stay safe. If you are being haunted, please send me your story and <laughs> stay safe as well. And then connect with us on the Facebook page. Uh, P.S. Spooky Shiz is the name of the Facebook page. It can also be found by typing in Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz in parentheses, or P.S. Spooky Shiz. And we will see you guys later. Stay spooky, my friends.